Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Good morning to all my fans. That's how I feel whenever there's an echo. Um, Good morning, everybody. Uh, I will make a very quick intro, but for the next three weeks, we are doing a series on the interactions that Jesus had with women. Um, We have a really great person to kick it off. Needing no introduction is the person who is discipling the prophets in that hallway. Um, And that is Miss Mary, and I'm going to hand it off to her. So welcome. If this is your first time here, I'm really glad you're here. And if this is your second or fifth or 50th, 500th, I also am really glad you're here. This is a sacred space that we get to share together this morning, and it's a beautiful and good thing. And yeah, my name's Mary, and I'm the children's pastor, which means I usually get to take these really big God truths, and I get to whittle them down into these little bite-sized nuggets for children and serve them with a, a side of goldfish crackers. <laughs> but, but today, I got to be here with you, and we get to do this deep dive into some scriptures, and I'm really excited about that too. So yeah, let's, let's extrapolate some scriptures together. So we're going to um, be unpacking the story of Jesus who meets the woman at the well. Um, and I love this story. But it's a really long passage, and so in the spirit of time, um, I'm going to just give you a really quick Reader's Digest abridged version of the story, and then we'll start going through it. So Jesus was going to Galilee, um, and he decided to take the quick route through Samaria, and then he got tired and presumably a little peckish, and so his disciples went into town to get some lunch, and Jesus stayed at this well and was hanging out when this woman came along to grab some water. And Jesus asked her, hey, can I have a drink of water? And this woman pushes back a bit. And Jesus, in his typical Jesus way, is completely undeterred, and he just keeps pressing in. And eventually he asks this woman, hey, bring your husband over. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, darn tootin', you don't have a husband. You have five of them, and the guy you're with now isn't one of them. And... The woman is like, okay, so I can see that you're like a prophet. So she starts asking these really hefty theological questions, at which point Jesus tells her for the very first time in all of his ministry that he is the Messiah. And the woman is so excited, she goes back into town and she tells everybody, come meet this guy who told me everything I ever did. I think this dude might be the Messiah. And they all met him, and they all eventually agreed. So, Reader's Digest. I love this story of the woman at the well. And I thought I knew it pretty well, but I realized as I read it again and again that more questions came up for me than I had bargained for. And full disclosure, I do not have the answers to those questions, but I think that's okay. I hope so, because here we are. Um, not having the answers is an invitation into wondering. And Mr. Rogers says that when we're wondering, we are learning. So let's wonder together about a few things. First of all, 
I wonder how we came to learn this story. Jesus is alone at the well. This woman comes to the well alone. There is nobody else there. This is the longest one-on-one conversation that Jesus has with any person that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. But without anybody else being there, I wonder how this conversation was documented. I also wonder, why wasn't this woman ever given a name? John writes this conversation in great detail. Jesus and the disciples go back and they hang out with this woman and all the other people for two days, and yet she's never given a name. And I wonder why. I also wonder if this woman is the sinner that she's always made out to be. Because although Jesus makes note of her five husbands and the man she's cohabitating with now, he does not call her a sinner, let alone some of the horrible things she's been called from by the pulpit. Um, And he does not offer her forgiveness, as he does the woman who was caught in adultery in John 8. And while we're on that, I also wonder why the Bible so often characterizes women by their purity or their promiscuity. I don't know, but I wonder. And I wonder what we lose in this story when we make the center of this story being Jesus disclosing this woman's marital history. Because I think this is actually more a story about identity. It's about those deep-held identities that this woman had inside of her. And it's about Jesus' identity, about who he says he is. And then it's about how that woman responds and how she moves into a fuller idea of her identity from that. So I'm hoping that as we delve into this story, we're going to come out with even more questions than before, because I do believe those questions are some of the most beautiful and holy gifts that we can give to God. So let's unpack it together. Um, If we could get that first slide up. He left Judea, and he went, once, he went back once more to Galilee, and now he had to go through Samaria. We cannot talk about this interaction that Jesus has with this woman without talking about the complicated and contentious relationship that the Samaritans had with the Jewish people. They both had the same starting out point. They both came from the 12 tribes of Israel, And they both held the first five books of the Bible to be holy text. But when Israel was in exile, people came into Samaria and they took up residence there. And the the Jewish people who were still residing there, eventually um, they, they kind of merged those cultures together. So the Jewish people would look at the Samaritans like almost like half-breeds, almost like the red-headed stepchild who's kind of looked at a little askance. And I almost look at their relationship like those step-siblings who just make Thanksgiving dinners, like, so brutal. They had this idea that, like, one is right and the other is wrong, and there is no getting over that hurdle. There is this clear, uncrossable divide between these two similar and yet vastly different groups of people. But I love that here it says, now we had to go through Samaria. Because I think 
he had to go there because he knew he had this divine appointment with this woman that he was going to meet at the well who he loved so dearly. He's just starting in his years of ministry, and already he's doing what Luke 2 prepared us for, that his coming was going to be glad tidings of great joy that will be for all people. All people. By making this trip through Samaria and to this well in the middle of the day to meet this woman, he was saying in God's kingdom, no one is disqualified. No one is forgotten. And typically the women would go together to the well in the morning. It was cooler then and there was safety in numbers. Going together would save women from this exact scenario that this woman found herself in now, alone with a man that she did not know. And I don't know why this woman was gathering water in the middle of the day when it was so hot, but I make up that it's because of shame, because she was a loner, a little rogue. And then there's Jesus. Jesus. From a first century context, men would not even make eye contact with a woman, let alone maintain eye contact, truly see the person. And they certainly would not engage in a conversation. But Jesus is never very interested in maintaining societal norms. So he not only looked at her, but he saw her, truly saw her. And not only that, he showed up in his vulnerability. He starts by naming his need. He thirsts. Jesus leads with his humanity and not his divinity. But this woman does something kind of unexpected. She pushes back on his request. Can I get the next slide? The Samaritan woman says to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Essentially reminding him, we're not even supposed to be talking to each other, let alone helping each other. Um, and Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So this woman starts with some core identifiers right off the bat. She says she is a Samaritan and she is a woman. And Jesus is a little cryptic. He's kind of piquing her curiosity. And so, oh, next slide. Again, this woman has more questions for him. She asks him, in the next slide, there it is. Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself? So again, she asks more questions. First, a really practical one. Okay, now you are talking about you having some water. How are you planning on getting that? And then a geographical one. Where is this water located? And then another question that is, again, rooted in her identity. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? Essentially, she was reminding Jesus, Jacob is my father too. I have a right to this well. 
I love this woman. This is a woman with moxie who's willing to take up space, and I am here for it. But again, Jesus does not answer her questions, but he doubles down on his own water. And he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And this all sounds so wonderful to the woman that she decides to play along. And so she's, and asks for this magical water that he's offering. And so she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. When she says this, I feel like she may have unwittingly actually gave an even deeper part of her identity here. She's not just a Samaritan. She's not just a woman. She's also human. She thirsts, and she keeps getting thirsty. There's these longings inside of her, and they keep coming back. They can only be quieted momentarily. And that's when Jesus brought out his big guns. And he said, go, call your husband, and come back. There it was. And I imagine suddenly this curious and intriguing and tantalizing conversation she'd been having with a stranger halted, and she was brought right back into reality. When Jesus brought up her husband, she faced the piece of her life that must have been deeply painful, one that would serve as a reminder of loss and and rejection, and I make up a lot of lies that she told herself to make sense of this story of her life, and they were all brought right into the middle of this conversation. And who knows why she answered the way she did. Maybe it just felt really good to have attention, and she wanted to drag it out a little longer. Maybe one of the things she thirsted for was feeling seen, and this conversation was just so delicious. She didn't want to go back to reality. Maybe she's like a parent who's lost a child, and a stranger innocently asks how many children you have. How much easier would it be to lie than to explain the complicated, complicated relationship she has with that question? So at the very least, she tells a half-truth. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you were right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. I love how Jesus, like, so casually drops these truth bombs, like, is this what everybody does when they meet somebody new at the well? And I know there's lots of stories that we make up about why this woman had so many husbands, When I was a kid, I always kind of pictured her as the original Elizabeth Taylor, who just had this grass-is-always-greener syndrome and was always looking for something a little better. But I think it's far more likely that those five husbands were not the victims of her wantonness, but rather she was victim to circumstances and situations that she had no control over again and again. Perhaps having lost some of her husbands by death or on the battlefield, other husbands who 
married her, and then abandoned her. From a first century context, women were considered the property of men. It's really interesting if you read the Ten Commandments. The Tenth Commandment says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, nor his wife, nor his male or female servant, nor his donkey, his ox, or any of his other belongings. The woman is lumped together with the man's belongings. She had no personal rights, no individual freedoms. So if a woman was widowed or divorced or abandoned, she would have no um, safeguards for her future provision. Considering how few options that women had, marriage and remarriage was critical for almost all women. So there might have been many reasons why this woman had had so many marriages. And there may have been really valid reasons for why she was living with a man who was not her husband. It might not have been adultery. There were lots of circumstances in which a woman would live with a man and not be called husband and wife that were actually entirely upright and socially acceptable. This woman's five marriages were not indicative of a moral, immoral woman, but a woman whose survival was contingent on learning the rhythms and routines of at least seven different households within her lifetime. I can only imagine the loss that she carried around inside of herself. I wonder if at some point, like a child in the foster care system who's been shuffled from home to home, she didn't even want to unpack her belongings anymore. She resigned herself to the reality that there was no place that would truly feel like home no place where she could let down her hair and kick off her shoes. This woman would have lived through so much disappointment and disillusionment, and I marvel and I thank God for that deep-seated survival instinct that she must have carried around inside of herself that got her through all of this upheaval. And I wonder if she chose to go to the well in that hot, hot sun, because the hope of Connecting with another human being just felt too unbearable to hold any longer. And so what does this woman do when Jesus calls her out on this half-truth? She responds by changing the topic. Can I have the next slide? Oh, maybe it's here? Yes, it is. Okay. Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. She's like, I don't want to go there. This is too raw for me. So let's, let's go back to something safer. Let's go back to religion. Let's go back to something that's black and white and right and wrong. And you know that a conversation is going deep when religion feels like the safer option. <laughs> but really, how often do we use religion or dogma to hide the truly painful parts in our stories. And so when she backpedals things to, G to religion, Jesus offers her something entirely different. Not more dogma, not more divisiveness between these two clashing, clashing cultures. Instead, he offers her hope. Jesus replies, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father 
neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and is now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. The hope that spills out of Jesus' words right here makes my heart want to jump out of its chest. A time is coming and has not yet come. You are amazing. I love you, my husband. (laughs) He knows me. Um, It's that already and not yet kingdom of God that we are still living in today. And I love that for all the time that Jesus follows up questions with more questions or with these really cryptic roundabout answers, right here he gives an answer that feels more like an invitation. It was an invitation to delve into understanding that she had never been given up until this point. It was an invitation to consider the words of the prophets that she would have never heard before. This is an invitation into hope, and into worship, and into belonging, something that she never had prior to this. And at last, all the years that she's tried to keep that hope at bay from all of that disappointment finally spills out of her. And she responds to the hope that Jesus holds out for her with more hope. And she says... I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am he. Next slide. And then leaving her water jar, the, water, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? I love that she left her jar of water behind. Her purpose for going to the well in the first place was replaced by a far greater one. Something happened here when Jesus confided in her the truth of his own identity, saying, I am he. It changed hers. This is not the story of an all-knowing God who called out the sexual history of a woman. This is a beautiful interplay of a woman who is stuck in a narrative of all the reasons why she was disqualified and a Christ who saw such deep value in her and who saw her heart break and all these unseen wounds, that he sought her out and he entrusted her before anyone else with the full reality of his identity. It's a story of a human being who, from celebrating and embracing the reality of Jesus' identity, was able to move into a fuller version of her own identity. The things that she came to The well with that morning were still true of her. She was still a Samaritan, still a woman, still had all those marriages. But she also knew at that point that she was a beloved daughter who 
who was seen and valued and sought after. She was a curious and respected theologian who sought and received understanding from her Lord. She was the first ever missionary and she was a nourisher of souls, starting with Jesus's. The disciples left Jesus at the well, hungry, tired, and thirsty. And when they returned with food, they found that he was no longer hungry. Um, can I get, the, oh, wait, yes. The, meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Next slide. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to, to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Vibrating. Is it okay? As I read and reread this scripture this week, I was remembering a time that I was in this building, in this room on a Sunday morning, and um, it was during worship, and the worship leader asked us to um, just speak out the things that, that God says that, that we are. And in that moment, everything within me recoiled, and I didn't want to do it. So instead, I named all the things that I hated about myself, all the things that are true, the things that I did and did not do that should disqualify me. And it's like God interrupted that conversation that I was having, just full of self-loathing. And he said, okay, you're talking about who you are, but who am I? I forgot that who I am doesn't really matter so much as who he is and who he says he is. And I wish that I could tell you that that moment in church shifted the internal dialogue that I have with myself and that I stopped paying attention to the inner voice that says, I don't have anything of value to offer, that the best thing I can do is just not bother anyone else. But it wouldn't be true because I still struggle with this every single day. There's a shame and a self-loathing that lives inside of myself, and they feel so familiar that they're like, comfortable old friends. But his reminder to me that it's not about who I am, but about who he is, was an invitation to focus not on my disqualifications, but on his qualifications. And his strength is perfected in my weakness. And I long to respond the way that this woman responded instead of trying to fearfully hide away the ugliest bits of my story, inviting others with joy and wonder, saying, come see this God who told me everything I ever did. The story is an invitation for all of us because we all have those parts in our stories that we wish weren't there, those parts we wish we could undo or at least could be unseen by anyone ever. But just as this woman was fully seen and fully loved, so are you. You matter.
your story matters. The beautiful reality is that God can do beautiful things with the hardest parts of your story, not because of anything you've done or haven't done, but because of who he is. And he is the God who makes all things new. If only we're willing to leave those old jars of water and shame behind. I also believe that this isn't just a personal invitation, but it's a corporate one as well. This is an invitation for the Universal Church. It's an invitation for Long Beach Christian Fellowship to make space for each person who walks through the doors as a beloved child, seen and loved by God, to move away from naming someone as in or out based on similarities or differences. I found this quote, and I love it. Your love for the Lord is permanently capped at the amount of love you have for the people in society who you like the very least. We read in 2 Corinthians 5 um, about reconciliation. And reconciliation is not just something that we passively receive. We're also invited into the ministry of reconciliation, of loving each person that we meet, of recognizing that they are also God's beloved child. We're going to be transitioning to communion, but... I want to close with um, an image I had as I was reading the story again and again. Jesus invited this woman to the well to come drink of his water, saying that whoever drank of it would become a well of water themselves. And the only way that we can hold water is with our hands out and open. The second we try to hold it close to our chests, or clench it tight with our fists, we lose it. And I pray that LBCF will be known as a people who hold the living water out for others instead of trying to grasp it too tightly. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan asks Jill as she looks out longingly at this beautiful water, are you thirsty? then come drink. And I drink. As we come to the table to take communion, consider the beauty that the only requirement is to acknowledge that your soul is thirsty and it hungers for God. And let this holy mystery food that represents Christ's broken body and Jesus' precious blood Feed and nourish your soul. And then I pray that it will also be a commission for each of us to go, just as this woman at the well did, and nourish the souls of others. Let us take part in this holy mystery together. 